Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. So you're a television journalist working for a news organization, and you get a big break. You get a posting at to be the main correspondent in another country, say Asia, maybe Africa, maybe South America, maybe in the Middle East. But you don't speak the language, or you don't do it very well. And you want to dig out those really important stories, the ones that could be critical but aren't in obvious places. So to use that refrain from that 1980s pop song, Who Are You Gonna Call? Our special guest this week on Communication Mixdown is going to help us answer that question. She's Colleen Morell, and she's an associate professor of journalism at Swinburne University with an extensive background as a working journalist in many countries across the world. And most importantly, she's published a book entitled Foreign Correspondence and International News Gathering, The Role of Fixers. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show tonight. Thank you very much. Now, let's start at the start. What's a fixer, and why is it important that we understand the role of a fixer in television news gathering? Well, I think think a fixer used to be very misunderstood. In fact, a fixer was sort of missing in the official record of what news gatherers did. And... I had been a fixer. I had, in my working career, always employed fixers. So I really only noticed that they were missing in the official record when I started a PhD. <clears throat> and at that time, I was, re- I was actually doing another topic for a year, but I was reading a lot about international news gathering, and I thought to myself, this is really strange because nobody mentions fixers. So I said to my supervisor at the time, I want to change topics and I want to do something about fixers. And he said, this was Professor Simon Cottle at the University of Melbourne. He said, but I'm across the literature and I've never heard of them. And I said, well, there you go, (laughs) because they're actually really important. And they're the people you go to when you don't know, you don't have any contacts in that country. You don't know how how it operates, you know, in, in the field. You're thrown in at the deep end and you don't have the sort of means to operate that you would have as a working journalist in your own country. So really they give you a sort of localised version of yourself. And the favourite fixer I discovered when I started interviewing people was somebody just like themselves, another reporter, but a local reporter. Okay, Um, just go back to your own experience. You said you were a fixer. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about when you were a fixer? Well, I 
In one of my early jobs, I was living in London at the time, I worked for French television, TF1, which is a commercial um, TV station. And so I was the local producer, really doing jobs that fixers do as well. So it was my job to set up um, TV stories around the country and in places like Northern Ireland and things. And sometimes you would get a new correspondent in because somebody was away. And that's when I usually encountered problems. So they would come across and say, well, listen, I really want to do this story about cricket. And you think, oh, God, not cricket again, you know, oh, a cricket or tailored suits from Savile Row or swan upping on the Thames. And you just think, no, these are terrible cliched stories about mm. Britain. Mm. Let me tell you about some other stories. And, mm -hmm. and it was a little bit like that. And then over the years, when I had different jobs in the media, I worked at the BBC, I worked at ICN, I worked for Associated Press, but I was sometimes moonlight for the French, um, you know, like they would come and say, help, you know, are you mm, free this mm. weekend? And I would work for them. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a job basically where you're employed because you're an expert in that country. Yes. You have good contacts, mm, you mm. understand the context, you know, the history, you know, if this is an important political event or not, mm, you mm. know, because you know the background and you're a sort of expert, I suppose. And when you were, just, just to unwind all that stuff, when you were working with uh, Moonlighting and doing that stuff, were you, were you able to convince the, uh, the journalists to follow your uh, intuition or your cultural knowledge, so to speak, and do stuff? Well, sometimes. I was in my 20s at the time, so oh. sometimes I would get you know, a much more senior correspondent who'd come over and insist on doing swan upping which is basically when you count the swans on the oh, Thames every year. And because it that. comes with, you know, uh, sort of people in fancy uniforms and lots of, oh. you know, razzmatazz, it was kind of just too, too good for them to turn down. So at times like that, it didn't work out. At other times, I would get sent to Northern Ireland to Belfast and trouble stories. And then I'd, I remember once I was sent with a very young correspondent there and he had no idea at all about the different groups in Northern Ireland. So then I would get listened to because, mm, you know, mm. you'd say, oh, my gosh, it's not the Irish, you know, revolutionary army. It's the Irish Republican army. And you'd be just be jumping in all the time to kind of correct the record because, mm, mm. you know, they, they basically had very little idea of the importance of certain groups or, you know, where the trouble was, that kind of thing. Mm. Now, what you're, you're, when we're, we were organizing this interview, you wrote me a couple of things. And you're, in your career, you said, as a journalist, you, you yourself employed fixers. Can you talk about maybe one example of where a fixer um, was working with you, where, where it was really important? Well, I worked with a really good fixer in Lebanon. So this was at the end of the Civil War in the early 90s. And I did a lot of calling around from people who had been in Beirut to find out a really good fixer. And on the basis of several people's recommendations, I, I hired this guy and went over and he was fantastic. He had amazing contacts and we worked with him very closely on a lot of stories. At particular times, we got problems locally because he was Muslim and, of course, there'd been this civil war, which mm. was barely finished at the time that we were there. And so local Christian journalists were getting to the reporter I was working with. I was there as a field producer. 
And the reporter was listening to all these people saying, he's dangerous, you know, don't go near him, we're sure that he's dangerous, and, and you know, basically, he's a Muslim, why are you working with him in, in Lebanon? So I had to kind of fight all the time to convince this person that he was safe mm. and that we could work with him, and he was really good. In fact, years later... <laughs> um, it transpires that he he was a he was what we call in England a tea leaf, um, a, a bit of a thief <laughs> on the side. He because he got access to all these places that we would go to that are generally off. You know, at the time they were sort of behind security. Uh, you know, there were a lot of roadblocks. You couldn't get sure. to certain places, so we would go to Baalbek and and historical places. And and he was kind of liberating quite a bit of statues, statues, Bo- and yes, booty, exactly. Oh my goodness! Okay. <laughs> so it, he wasn't actually dangerous, but he he certainly had a, had a colourful the um, ins and outs yeah. of uh, hiring a fixer. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that I'm mo- mo- much more recently ta- thinking about all this when when we're talking about fixers, the 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 cave rescue in Thailand, and I'm thinking. The fixers in Thailand must be having a field day because there was so much media there. Yes. When there's a big story or the story is running hot, then fixers are very much in demand and they can set the prices. Sometimes when it's quiet, you know, you'll you'll probably accept lower prices. But these are ad hoc hires. So people are hired for a short time. They're hired on a daily basis and you know, the loyalty is is just what that is, basically. Mm. So you feel as loyal to them as they probably feel to you. And, you know, but when they're really good, you want to keep them. So, you know, and then other people will come along, usually the American networks and pay a lot more money, and then you could lose your fixer. So, right. yeah, so they're, they're, when, when it's a big story like that, I'd say the competition's pretty fierce and money gets thrown around. Yep. And obviously, in the case of Thailand, but also in Lebanon, it would be a case of having the language the fixer would have to have the language that you needed to negotiate around various kinds of local scenes yes and correspondents these days reporters don't necessarily have those languages and therefore they can be quite easily fooled as well about stories and i spoke to quite a few fixers who whilst they said they didn't do this themselves they could report on other fixers who would say for example that they didn't want a particular person interviewed because he had a you know, a take that they didn't like on a particular story, they would say, well, the road's blocked. And if the reporter doesn't know because they don't speak Arabic, they don't know that the road isn't blocked. Sure. Um, and that's a kind of <clears throat> part of what the fixer might do to make the country look better because, you know, they're patriotic yes. and they want things to look good and for the right people to be interviewed. Mm. On the other hand, sometimes those people that come on as sources that are known by the fixers are not necessarily representative of opinion at large you know if you employ people who are essentially globalized citizens they speak english they are the elite in the country they are not going to be tapping into kind of unhappy people who aren't you know aren't happy with the regime and so Mm -hmm. you might go as a journalist and you think great i'm going to interview this person this person's got great english you know understands studied in australia well, they're not necessarily representative of kind of, you know, millions Absolutely. of people in the country. Are the journalists aware of these kinds of things? Is this something that uh, is ne- journalists are now more aware of or are they sort of doing business as usual? I think there's a, a lot more is uh, 
talked about and researched on fixers these days than, than when I started. After I finished my PhD, I went back to Tim Palmer from the ABC because I was doing a particular chapter for the book on Indonesia. And I said, well, you know, what do you think? Do you think you represented the country well with the fixers that you chose? And, and he said, no, actually, I'm not sure we always did because there had been an election where, you know, the Australian, ABC had thought, everybody mm. had thought, mm. all the journalists had thought that a particular um, party was going to be in power at the end of this. And they sort of got suckered into that because the people that they went they to speak talk, to yeah. were in power, were, yes. you know, the, the kind of elite Absolutely. of the country. And therefore, that's what they persuaded them mm. was the case. Yeah, I think that was a thing that you, you wrote me and said that was one of the really important findings in mm. your study was the fact that the fixers were a lot like the journalists who were hiring them and their worldviews were similar. And in fact, it was it was a kind of, I suppose, a kind of unconscious bias in some respects. Yeah, because you tend to employ people that you want to work with. And if you don't, you know, if you're having discussions during the day where you're profoundly disagreeing with somebody, then you're going to find a reason not to work with them mm. tomorrow. And because it's a very unfair power difference between the reporter and the fixer, then you can just let them go. And there's, you know, there's sort of no comeuppance to you. You've mm. just finished the contract because it's, it, you know, there's no paper contract anyway, mostly. You, to do your research, you said you just before you said you spoke to a lot of fixers. Is that, was that part of what you were trying to do was get some sense of their worldview and so on? No, actually, for my PhD, I didn't speak to so many, just, you know, on the record, but I'd spoke to a lot more than I interviewed. And I've, and I've spoken to a lot more since, if you like, and obviously spoken to them over time. Mm. But I was really looking for people for my research who had been in conflict zones. So the, f the fixes that I chose were from Iraq, from uh, Kosovo, from Gaza, from Indonesia, places like that. So I wasn't really looking for kind of everyday fixers in France or Germany. I was looking for people who'd worked in conflict zones, and particularly in Iraq, because Iraq was a bit of a turning point for the use of fixers in lots of different ways. What, why was that? Um, well, journalists have always used fixers. I mean, scholars kind of, you know, got, got sort of attached to this idea with the Iraq war that this was something new. It really wasn't. I mean, we've always worked with fixers. Right. What changed in the Iraq war was that it became so much more dangerous that fixers sometimes replaced journalists. So when a Western reporter couldn't go out onto the street, they would talk to the fixer and say, do you feel happy about going out onto the street? And mostly they would. So they would go and do the interview themselves. Now, that was new. Mm. However, what the reporters would say was we didn't never send them to areas that they came from or where they could be would be known, etc. So yeah. these were very carefully kind of choreographed yep, you know, yep. events. Um, but and there was also a real difference in Iraq between journalists who went there plus journalists who thought they didn't need to be there. And that was, for example, <clears throat> the companies I concentrated on were the BBC and CNN. And both of them were there because you know, there were troops on the ground and they thought they had to be there. So the ABC got a bit fed up with the story, I believe, in the end. They withdrew. It was terribly expensive. When I spoke to BBC to ABC correspondents, they said, well, there's no end game. You know, mm, where is this story mm, going? Mm, there's mm, not much mm. interest. And we can't really get to the story. I put that to the BBC journalists and they said, well, we can get to the story. That's not true. We try and get to the story as much as we can. We don't hide in the green zone you know, we do get out. 
At ITN over in the UK, that was to do with um, insurance. They couldn't get insurance for some of those trips in the end because they were so expensive and so dangerous that they just, um, you know, kind of not fabricated, but they evolved a narrative which said we don't need to be there. Right. Maybe this is a good time to take a break, give you a breath. Fight for your mic. Support 3CR's 2018 Radiothon with Greek Resistance Bulletin and Open Studio, 204 High Street, Northgate, on Thursday the 12th of July from 8 o'clock. Come and dance the night away at this 3CR radio fundraiser with performers from Open Jam Cafe New. Playing on the night will be Cats in the Canary, Pascalia Latra, Yorgos Sklavos, Kalliopis Stavropoulos, and special guests. Supporting 3CR and the Greek Resistance Bulletin means supporting independent and radical news and voices. Open Studio 204 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday the 12th of July at 8pm. Admission, $10 waged, $8 unwaged. Fight for your mic. This is Communication Mixed Down, and this week we're talking with Colleen Morell, and she's discussing foreign correspondence, international news gathering, and the role of the fixer. Now, you did your initial work, your research and study, 2010, 2011 approximately, but you followed it up. In 2013, you were discovering that the Internet and social media were starting to play a bigger part in fixers' working lives. What was this all about? So I discovered at around, I think it was 2012, 2013, that there were these growing sites on Facebook, which started off as closed groups, and then they became some of them secret groups. And these were sites to do with international news gathering. So when I looked on these sites, and I gathered data, I discovered that a lot of it was to do with finding fixes. So again, it was mostly reporters trying to find fixes, but they were mostly freelance journalists. They weren't the staff journalists that had all the resources and the databases and the kind of collective history. These were people just saying, I'm going to Burkina Faso, who do you know a good fixer? Or, you know, more dangerously, they were saying, I'm going to Libya, do you have a good fixer's name? Or I'm going to Syria, actually, Mm. at the beginning, when I first started monitoring a particular site. And, uh, you know, it struck me as, first of all, incredibly dangerous that people would just take someone's um, advice and then, you know, with one name, head off, off. to <laughs> Tripoli or whatever. Um, on the other hand, fixers were beginning to assert themselves in this area and they were advertising themselves. They were saying, you know, if you're coming over to Damascus, I'm here, or you're coming over to Beirut, I'm here. I've got, you know, mm. two vehicles, I've got a camera, I've got this, I've got that. So that was really interesting to me because it was like a new version. It was it was a kind of open source. Well, it wasn't really open source because you had to get permission to be on the site. But it was a site for freelance reporters and fixers, like freelance fixers. You you talked about it a little bit as as a process of partly democratizing the the, the whole fixer relationship with the journalists and so on. And it's an interesting way of thinking about this, actually. Well, yes, because what I discovered in talking to staff journalists was that when they had a really good fixer, they'd keep the name to themselves, or they'd just keep it within their company. So, you know, the, the poor fixers, unbeknownst to them, were penalized for being good because if they were good, their names were never passed on. People only passed on the names of the not-so-great ones. So, yeah, Very interesting. And also, more recently, you're you're following this along, you've discovered that fixers are actually setting up their own companies. And I was wondering why, why are they doing this and how significant is this? 
Well, I think it's great because I think at last they're taking control or some control of this process. Obviously, they still have to get hired, but they are putting themselves out there and saying, this is what we offer. And there are some pretty large companies out there. There are also some, some pretty small ones. You know, I mean, which, which countries are these? Oh, look, there are some people who are doing the whole of the Balkans or, you know, great patches of Europe, for example, okay. or Scandinavia, mm, mm, mm. you know. So, okay. so they've yep. kind of banded together with fixers in Denmark and Sweden and Finland and, and etc. Um, and they're advertising on their own sites, but they're also advertising on Facebook. So company, you know, sites like Need a Fixer or, or okay. there's World Fixer, which has okay. been set up um, by Mike Garrett in the UK which is a worldwide fixer um, site where you can kind of interview each other before you accept the work and he keeps an eye on um, the process and the safety to some degree or as much as you can and they sort of um, regulate it and check Mm, that people mm. are really who they say they are and that kind of thing. And and there are also other organisations which are putting fixers in touch with journalists in the West and they're doing the stories together and they're getting joint bylines and there's a kind of equity going on there, which is sometimes missing from the mm, journalist mm, fixer mm, relationship. Mm, mm. Look, this is something that just occurs to me just right off the top of my head at this point. In terms of gender, um, are fixers mostly male, female? As Have you noticed a change over the last little while? Or is that a question that I should really be asking? Well, look, in certain countries, they're much more likely to be male, but not always. And um, certainly female correspondents working in places like Afghanistan and Mm -hmm. um, previously in Syria or Lebanon or Jordan would gravitate towards female fixers because that all you know you're you're perhaps going for a different kind of view of the world or access to different people Mm -hmm. but there have always been great fixers who were very well known and female Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um i don't know that i've noticed a particular change in that over the years Mm -hmm. it would be interesting to go back and have a look at that yeah Also, another thing that you mentioned in our correspondence or your correspondence to me is that you're finding the fixes are crossing over into film industry. And I was interested in finding out why is that happening and in particular, what countries? Can you name some countries and can you name films where this would be? What about about the countries? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look... This was something that came out of me hunting for entrepreneurs. And I, and I think that fixers are entrepreneurs anyway, but now it's gone one step further. And in terms of the film industry, the film industry has realized, and the television industry, that these people are really useful, that it's a useful kind of catch-all job to have. It's both logistical and editorial. And, mm. and you know, pe- these people know how to get, you know, um, filming permits and all that kind of thing that you need to operate. So... Um, particularly in places like India and uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Turkey. Yep. There are a lot of fixers who, or, or companies that are operating on both, in both spheres, mm, both mm, you know, mm. news and, and also film. film. But some of the people I interviewed recently said to, said to me that um, the conditions weren't so good in the film industry, which I found interesting you know, because they're, they're, there are so many different roles in the film industry and this is just a new one. You know, sure. it, it, it's an added role. They weren't paying as well as they pay in, in the news mm-hmm, industry. Mm-hmm. Look, we're, we're probably coming up to the end, but I wanted to go right back to the start of our chat. And the new, the, a newly, and this newly appointed journalist who has to go off into another country and uh, 
if you had to give this person some advice, what would be your number one tip related to employing or arranging something to do with a fixer? Well, I always look at, at companies that I worked at who have long histories of working with fixers like the BBC or ITN. The, the great resource that they had were databases with lots of information on. So effectively, you're gathering information about people where they've been tried and tested before, um, you know, in conflict and not in conflict. And, and, you know, in the past, for example, those databases had lots of information, I'm sure, that shouldn't have been gathered and kept about people, you know, sort of people's just ideas about other people, you know, good on politics, not so good on this, or, you know, just just idle ideas about what people are about. So I would definitely say speak to other people, like speak mm. to everybody who's just come out of that country and see who's around and who's available. Who's reliable is really important because you're not just after the amazing people who are going to get you an exclusive with a lot of danger, you always want also want the people who are prepared to pay, play the longer game mm. and uh, be consistent and deliver and not disappear for three days while they hunt down this exclusive and mm. and then you mm. don't have anybody to help you. It's television in particular that you need fixers for because you have to work so fast and you've got so many demands on your time. Mm. And speaking to correspondents, a lot of them said, I'd never have got this story out if it hadn't been for his ability to talk to people, access information, mend my software, <laughs> you know, help with all kinds of different things that made the, made the difference between the story getting out or not getting mm -hmm. out. You know. It's been fascinating talking to you, Colleen, and want to thank you so much for being on Communication Mixdown and all the best with your work and research. Thank you. And I've been talking with Colleen Morell. She's an associate professor of journalism at Swinburne University, and the name of her book is Foreign Correspondence, International News Gathering, the Role of Fixers, and it's published by Routledge. And we'll put the link on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website along with a podcast of this show. Well, that's it for us. That's all for this week. This has been Communication Mixdown. We're back again next Thursday at 6 o'clock. <laughs>